Here we are again. Here we are again. You'll notice that my voice is really not very improved from the last podcast. it's not. You still sound quite unwell. (laughs) (laughs) The truth is that we are actually – we recorded – Two in one sitting because um, I'm going away for a bit and... I'm going away next week yeah. and then we're going to hit a very busy season of budgets and royal weddings and all sorts of I'm crazy I'm going over to, to host the royal wedding broadcast. How exciting. I can't wait to well, see you Well, I mean, there. they just needed someone with a rich and textured uh, knowledge of minor European royalty. I think they just need the sort of person who's not going to be embarrassed to wear some really friggin' weird hat oh, on I'm their head. I'm not wearing a hat, love. <laughs> You don't get this hair and ever get a hat on top of it. I look like, you know, Marie Antoinette if you tried to lodge a hat on top of this fuzz. And also, do you know something that really annoys me? When I see reporters on, say, like a Melbourne Cup day or something wearing a hat. Wearing a Melbourne Cup. Yeah, I know. I think you're a reporter. You're not a participant. I also feel like that about um, Academy Awards where the reporters are wearing like floor-length gowns. You just think, oh, my God, just wear a shirt. Well, yeah, look, I've had to cover the Academy Awards when I was US correspondent. And and what did you wear? I wore a (laughs) black tie frock, but not a very done up one, if you know what I mean. Like enough that I didn't feel like a boob wearing shorts and a T-shirt. In fact, I think actually the rule is you have to wear something black tie. But I also think I'm not a movie star. I'm here to vox pop movie stars. Let's not get ahead of ourselves, frankly. Did you have any like spectacular flame outs when you're trying to vox pop a movie star? Like did you get iced? Is it just like no. you just have to try and plunge into the torrent and like yeah, just emerge with Goldie Horn or something? Like yeah. it just it sounds like Oh my god, the oh, worst. It's just, yeah. It's 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 almost as bad as like do you know the other thing I hate and I dodge it as much as possible? If we have to go to the Logies and they want you to walk on the red carpet and get your photo taken. I, I did think- that once. It was the most upsetting uh, moment of my life because I was a, a nominee. So they were like, go down the bit where people take photos. And I'm like, oh, my God. But I feel like the greatest nong ever. Yeah. So I'm like mincing along and making eye contact with nobody because nobody knew who I was. And so I'm like, hi. And I literally got to the point where you have to walk along this board and there's all these photographers. But I walked along and all these photographers are just going, no, it's all right. Like it was like cameras down. I'm just like, we're just waiting for, you know, Hugh Sheridan or something. Lisa Miller, my friend in London once (laughs) had to go and she – um, was shouted at by a photographer who said to her, shouted at her, get out of the way, you nobody. <laughs> okay, well, that's that's really about as explicit as it gets. <laughs> I was really just um, inferring that from the body language of everybody around me. Just uh, Wow, that's no, to vocalise. actually said it to her. Oh, um, my God, we're all monsters. Hey, beings. I didn't flag with you that I was going to raise this, but I really oh, feel good. the need right. like, for almost like a therapy session on yeah, this okay. topic. Okay, what? Um, the final season of The Americans is starting. Oh, okay. Now, yep. I know that we didn't love the last season. No, but we we saw it through. And I'm certainly going to watch it because I'm yep. very, very invested. In Are you a bit Elizabeth. worried about how they're going to clean this up at the end? I think it's just be a massive bloodbath. Everyone dies, right? It's got to be a massacre. Yeah, sure. The only question is how. And so I've got some various theories okay. about. Okay. So just for anyone listening, these aren't spoilers. It's just my theories about how things might happen. If I were in the writer's room of that, I would say there's a couple of things that have been building that we have to have a resolution of. Mm-hmm. One is Stan and Philip's relationship. Sure. One is Philip and Elizabeth's relationship mm-hmm. and one is Philip's Philip and Elizabeth's relationship with their children. Mm-hmm. I think that there's a – so I think Philip and Stan have to have a face-off. I think Stan has to discover what's happened. Of course. And mm-hmm. then I think Philip has to kill him. Okay. Wow. I think Philip's going to have to kill Stan. And I, my prediction is that might happen like say midway through. If why I was do you think it, Philip will have to – why do you think it wouldn't happen the other way around? 
because then I think Stan is a tragic character because whichever way it goes, it's going to be bad for Stan yep. because either – he I survives just, and gets the sack. Yeah, for and, and being he, such a blithering idiot that he's supposed boob. to be like chasing the KGB, hanging out with them the whole time. He's your best friend. Yes, just Washington's like most, you had one job. Like Russia's really, his most elite <laughs> asset is Stan's best friend. I know. Stan's gonna Stan's gonna kill himself anyway. Yeah, um, and or Stan catches them, but and then he's maybe a hero because he's caught them. But everyone's still gonna know. Mate, wow, this took dude you a while. Over like, for like twenty years. He's around your house for pizza every second night, dude. And so Stan's internal yeah. – Stan already considers himself, I think, a bit of a loser because yeah. of his marriage breakup and stuff. Yeah. And I think that this will just destroy Stan whichever way it goes. Yeah. So I think it's probably tidier to just top Stan. And mm. the other reason I think this is because I think that Philip and Elizabeth need to have a standoff and I think that there's a strong chance that Elizabeth, Elizabeth – will kill Philip? Yes. Yeah. Do you reckon? I reckon she's going to kill the whole family. Oh, my God. Uh, it's going to be like a blood wedding, I reckon. Uh, but I think something tells me that Elizabeth walks away, like uh, that she goes back to Russia. I imagine if you're writing this right now in the oh, it'd in be the, so fun. But yeah, in the yeah. um in the like geopolitical environment that the writers are now working in, like now that we are at a point where serious hostilities with Russia oh, are a big thing, you know, amazing. like it's very top of mind. Like, how would that affect the way that you would craft this? What started off as a kind of like, oh, you know, well, fairy giving, story. I've been giving this quite a lot of thought over the weekend. I bet like, you have. Lying in bed awake, like plotting Worrying. it. Mm. I also think that um, the kids are Americans. Even though they're trying to like, you know, draw Paige into their world, Paige firstly is loose and a bit – she's not Elizabeth. Like she's no. not Elizabeth and Philip. She's loose and I think um, they are – those kids, they're not Russians. They don't have loyalty to the motherland. They are Americans. And I think that Henry's also been a bit of a, for lack of a better word, sleeper because, you know, Paige has had the more developed plot line than Henry. I think there's a chance that Henry's going to find out this season and the kids are going to go, we're dobbing mum and daddy and, like, this is just unbelievable. So Maybe I think it could turn into a sort of kids and stand. That's what I think. Yeah, right. So I reckon what might – if I were plotting it, here's what I would do. I would say fairly early on Henry discovers the secret – um, Henry and Paige go, this is just uh, – maybe it's prompted by something like they just they see Philip and Elizabeth kill somebody or something where they the reality of this is brought home to them. They go over to Stan. They tell Stan. Stan has a sort of crisis but then it, it all sort of the penny drops. Then so the kids leave. Philip and Elizabeth realise the kids have dobbed them in. They go on the run. So Philip and Elizabeth are then on the run. Stan's in pursuit. About halfway through the st- season, Stan actually – I don't know where Elizabeth is but let's say Stan catches up with Philip – and it's like a sort of showdown between Philip and Stan. Philip kills Stan. So then as a viewer, you, you're just reeling and you think, oh, my God, it's only episode six. Where have we got left to go after Philip's killed Stan? Philip and Elizabeth then keep being on the run. Then at a certain point, Gabriella, whoever calls in um, Elizabeth and says, <laughs> you know what? Oh, sorry, Philip says to Elizabeth, listen, we need to um, – Stuff this. I've, I've had a gutful of this. I'm sick of this. I just want to ha- live a quiet life in America. Let's turn and go into witness protection or let's um, just build new identities and go undercover somewhere else. Let's run off to Cuba or whatever. Um, I think that then the motherland is going to say to Elizabeth, Philip's too loose. You've got to get rid of him because he's a total liability. Um, we can't trust him anymore. And then I think there's a strong chance that Elizabeth will kill Philip and go back to Russia. That's what I'd do if I was writing it. 
Okay. All right. We've got to plot this out and then just like check any plot points that, that actually <laughs> wouldn't it be great if they all just decide to become American and like join the PTA. And it's something? a happy ending. Yeah. I, I'll be disappointed if there's a happy ending, okay. even though I love Philip and Elizabeth. Take this on notice. Because I feel like it's like a Russian novel, the whole series, yeah. and they don't have happy endings. So no. if you want to stay true to the sort of form of it yeah. and what they're referencing, mm. also Russia loses the Cold War. Yeah. There's no happy ending here. Okay, so uh, we're all on notice. Yeah, no, I love the way you're thinking. I am just, I'm very keen for that. Even though we ended the last series on low ebb of enthusiasm, I'm, I'm, I'm ready for a like knock it out of the park final season. And even don't I, let us down. <laughs> even though I've said that, you know, that's basically I'd plot it to sort of kill everyone, and everyone's yep. going to be, you know, just utterly traumatized. Well, don't I mean, ever I'm come round be... and tell my kids any like. <laughs> Bedtime stories with you. <laughs> and then oh, children. I'm going to be shattered all the bunnies when, Stan die. Bi- when Stan bites it all. Like I'm, I just, I'm very invested I in all your sen- share your sense of pessimism for Stan. <sighs> okay. Right. Sure. Right. Good. God, I feel better wow, now that's, that's off, off my chest. chest. Okay, um, What's been going on? Uh, well, look, I, um, I saw the Book of Mormon. Oh! Ah, there you go. I went to a musical what did you think? without you, what did you and think? I loved it. It really was. Uh, sense. It, it was so. It was very tight. It was very um, joyous. It was just almost perfect. Like it just. Um, there were there were no parts that lagged. It was like even just the mechanics of quick change and set change and everybody was putting in like a perfect performance. It was really great. Did you laugh when they did um, You and Me but mostly me? I did. I thought of you throughout, yes. (laughs) There you go. What about the song where they do like (laughs) it's about repression with a switch it off? Yeah. Oh, my God. Like a light Turn it off. Like a light Well, it was really great and I, I mean, so the two principal, Elder Price and Elder um, uh, Cunningham, are the played by the people um, you know who who did it on did it Broadway. Broadway? So yeah. they are incredibly practiced at these roles. But I actually thought that one of the sleeper stars or two of them in the cast were both Australian. Um, there was Zara Newman um, who plays Nabulungi, the um, African woman who they kind of you know um, make friends with when they when they move to Uganda. Um, and also this guy called Rowan Witt or Witt who played Elder McKinley who's who leads that song about you right. know, the, the old ancient Mormon trick of just switching off your emotions and, oh, my God, he's just – he's so good, this guy. Like he's he really gave such a great performance that in the ensemble pieces I was always looking for him because – Oh, right, his, he was so great. His, yeah, his, his face was perfect and he was basically, you know, evoking – the spirit of this um, Mormon missionary trying to pretend not to be gay, but like just grabbing every <laughs> every possibility to be a bit out there. Anyway, he was great. I just thought he smashed it, that guy. And it's a really great demonstration of how um, with ensemble work um, – you can you can avoid being lost in that crowd, and this guy really shone through. Yeah, but not in an annoying, upstagey sort of way. I, I remember seeing Uncle Vanya a few years ago at Sydney Theatre Company, and it was one of the. It was just the most unbelievable cast yeah. ever: Kate Blanchett, Hugo yeah. Weaving, Richard Roxburgh, John Bell, um, Jackie yeah. Weaver. Like, just oh, was Jackie Weaver in it? Anyway, just unbelievable. Um, 
amazingly, when you had all those people on stage, do you know which person I could not take my eyes off? Hugo Weaving. Mm. He is amazing. And he wasn't being upstagey. Mm. It's just that his stage presence and his charisma is just overwhelming. Like you just, you, yeah. every time something happens, you just look at Hugo Weaving to see what his reaction is. Like I just think he's absolutely phenomenal. He is. Okay, riddle me this, Batman. Why Book of Mormon on any measure is bigoted? against Mormons, and it's racist. Uh-huh. So no, that's racist. How do they get away with that? It's one of the most lauded musicals I, ever. Yeah, okay. So I wondered that too. And I'd read all of this stuff about, oh, God, it's so it's so fantastically offensive. You know, it's extraordinary. I, You know, I my expectations of the offensiveness of it were dialed up to 11. So right. I walked out of there thinking that was less offensive than I thought it would be. Okay. But like, like, okay, so there is this, there's a song where the audience is invited to laugh about the fact that this Ugandan community who they go to be missionaries among have all got AIDS. Like mm. it's it's very South Park, you know, oh, yeah. obviously. Yeah. Um, but I think, do you know, I think that their trick is, right, the, the headline offence is to Mormons, right? Yeah. A reasonably affluent group of largely white yeah. religious movement, right, um, in the United States. So you start off by making the headline um, offence against a group that is, you know, not substantially disempowered in American society. I mean, people right. laugh at Mormons, but, you know, they're not generally um, construed as a group against whom a historic and, like, injurious discrimination has been applied, right? Right. So – that's who you make the headline victims and then you feed in all this other stuff so that it kind of assumes this strange kind of, well, we offend everybody sort of um, uh, effect. Right. And I think that that's how they've got away with it. That's interesting. Um, yeah, you're probably right. Um, it just it, it did strike me that in this age where people say the tiniest thing and they're just I, I know yeah that you can get away with um, doing it. I've been um, consuming some fairly eclectic stuff of recent weeks. I listened to you know well, the things I always listen to, but just I guess the content of them in itself is eclectic. So Alec Baldwin's po- podcast, you know that yeah. I really like. Um, he interviewed Kyle McLaughlin of Twin oh, Peaks. Fame. Right, yeah. um, it's probably one for the Twin Peaks. Um, aficionados mm. because it just goes into a lot about what it's like to work with David Lynch and Kyle sure. McLaughlin's been a bit of David Lynch's muse. Yeah. I can't remember if McLaughlin's family were Mormon, but they were sort of very conservative and religious. Maybe they were Mormons. I can't remember. He certainly looks like a Mormon, Kyle McLaughlin, he does. doesn't he? <laughs> um, anyway, it was just very interesting. And also Kyle McLaughlin was quite open about that he's just made some sort of bad choices about his hmm. career where he's been riding enormous highs and then he's just backed it in with making some quite dodgy right, okay. sort of um, choices. It's refreshing anyway. to hear someone admit that. Yeah, it was quite an interesting. Michael um, Caine did that one. Like who talked about, he said, oh, I've, "I just, I've just done too many films because I just, you know, I like the money." <laughs> <laughs> like Joan Didion, just um, being completely honest about things. Um, I have also been watching a British cop drama called The Line of Duty. Oh, okay. Um, which is quite interesting. It's set. I'm get, I've got something to make me allergic in your office. Yeah. <laughs> I'm I'm just, I haven't vacuumed for a while, My eyes mate. are about to shut and I'm just about to oh start my God, like you obsessive you're, a, you're allergic to me now. That's a good sign. Yeah, I need to like, yeah, go take a Zyrtec tissues. or something. Thanks, doll. Oh, um, I've, got, I've got a um, Claritine in my bag, I think. Oh, okay. Um... The I'll line just pop that out. You keep about... yabbering and I'll find some drugs for you. <laughs> That's right. I'm keep... That's the kind of place gonna, I run here. I'm going to keep yabbering through my anaphylaxis that I'm having <laughs> until my throat closes over. God damn it. I'll keep speaking. Um, 
The line of duty is about a unit of cops. Oh, thanks heaps. It's an anti-corruption unit, AC12, I think it's called, um, anti-corruption 12. And these cops investigate other cops that they consider to be corrupt. Right. It's It's got something that I like going for it, which is it's almost entirely plot-driven. You get almost nothing of people's backstories and right. motivation, just the tiniest bit <laughs> that explains that perhaps their behaviour or yeah. what they're like in the workplace, but they don't try to flesh the characters out fully. Right, it's okay. quite two-dimensional. Yeah. Um, but because it's got this sort of driving plot, you just it keeps you sort of going along. So it's good – I'd say it's a good, you know, binge watch if you're looking for something, you yeah. know, in school holidays or whatever – it's a good, just keeps you sort of churning along and, and well done as they mm. always do with those Brit things. Yeah. And it's not, it is um, gritty, but it's not um, like wrist slitting like say Luther where it's just yeah. like, oh, this is just, oh, it's just, it's just sort of gritty and pacey. So yeah, I recommend it. Mm, okay. Mm. Um, I've got oh, a couple of books that I've been meaning to tell you about. Um, I just finished. This extraordinary book, actually, um, it's called My Absolute Darling, and yeah. I think it is like it's a hugely controversial book. I think, and the writer Gabrielle Talent, it's a first time novel, um, and he's coming here for the Sydney Writers Festival, and uh-huh. I'll definitely get along to listen to that because I was completely seized by this book. I couldn't stop reading it. Wow. Um, What's it about? Okay, so here's the thing. It is about a 14-year-old girl um, and her name's Julia but people call her Turtle for sort of unexplained reasons. Anyway, she's she she lives in a kind of like a survivalist hut basically with her dad right. who's this charismatic lunatic called Martin and he's a kind of eco-catastrophist and survivalist and the two of them live in um, – sort of near Mendocino, which is in sort of the north coast of um, California. They live in sort of in a forest. And um, she goes to school, but she hates school. She doesn't like it. She's a bit of a, you know, doesn't like authority figures. She's super close to her father, who it's established pretty early on, has been sexually abusing her for years. But she loves him intensely and is as mixed up and – messed up as you would expect a girl in that position to be. And so you're presented with this as the status quo, like this is their relationship. So it's not like, oh, you know, everything's going fine and then suddenly she's sexually abused by her father. It's that is how, you know, things are. And it the the book forces you to do a whole lot of things as a reader. One, incorporate um, that element of the story. Um which is at times quite explicit and he is violent towards her, which is very hard to read. So, like, there's elements of the book that are a bit kind of um, a, little life, a little life-ish, violent. both, yeah. Right. Um, so it's hard to read. But then the weird thing is that there is such an intense beauty in the book as well that is more about her internal life and particularly her interaction with the world of nature around her. Like... Mm. The, the the descriptions of plants and of animals in this book, I mean, I can't possibly explain how beautiful they are by just sort of saying so, um, but there are passages there that you read and you just think that is a perfect, surprising and incredibly deft description of 
this thing that she's seeing or, you know, she goes sort of walking around in the forest a lot. She meets um, a pair of boys that she kind of finds they're lost in the forest and she helps them and she becomes friends with them. And so they introduce this kind of thread of normalcy that provides a contrast with her ordinary life and that makes her start thinking my life is kind of weird. And anyway, it, there's, there is um, – it. It's very gripping and it builds to um, a very active conclusion. But it constantly has this tension between the restfulness and beauty of the descriptive work of the writer and the action of the sort of like – at times it's like a, a chase movie or something. You know, like yeah. there's lots of headline action and drama and what's going to happen next. But in some ways the most impressive thing about the book is actually – the descriptions of the world that she inhabits. Anyway, it's it is an extraordinary book. Like it, I couldn't stop reading it. I thought it was massively original. It right raises all of these issues. I kept having to check the. I'm like, is this really written by a guy? Like it's it's an incredible undertaking for a first time male writer to write this kind of female character. Right. Um. And people have likened it to um, uh, um, one, um, you know, Catcher in the Rye, and you wow. know, like, yeah. Um, what nationality is the writer? He's American. He grew up around there in California. Right. His name's Gabriel Talent. His his mother Elizabeth Talent is a writer. What um, sort of age is he? Oh, I think he's in his like seriously twenties or early thirties or something. Wow. It's it's an incredibly accomplished bit of work. Mm. Um, and I just think like they'll that have to, they'll have to be you know all sorts of dates around you know identity and you know because he is stepping into this abused fourteen year old girl's character and I but I, I I hate that debate <laughs> because I just think as soon as we start getting yeah. prescriptive about you can only write what you understand and yeah. it's an aff- you affront if you of, step yeah. into someone else's experience. I mean, writing is about imagination. Well, it's taking a gamble, isn't it, to see if you can pull it off to the extent that it's convincing to well, sufficient I, people, right? I don't it's- assume if I read, say, you know, if I read this book and he's writing in the voice of a 14-year-old girl, I don't presume to think he's speaking for all 14-year-old girls, sure. yeah. you know, so – um, and this character is like she's she's a great character, yeah. And you're really, you're kind of really kind of going for her, you know, right. as it as as the book proceeds. You know, you're really on her side. She's a great kid, you know. For some reason, it's making me think a bit as you're describing it of Disgrace by J. M. Curtsy. Oh yeah, okay. Have you yeah. read that? Yes, I have. Yeah, mm-hmm. just just because it's the sort of woman who's in an isolated sort of yeah. position. Well, yeah, with the, with the father at the house. No, who's the father? Yeah. The father's died or something. I can't remember. No, the university no, lecturer yeah. who's been, yeah. yeah, that's right, disgraced and come up there and then she's got the dogs and, you know, it's all the rape happens and blah, blah, blah. Um, yeah, that sounds really good. I, was, I actually kept thinking of Lolita just because yeah, you kind of – Well, said, just yeah. because it's a father who is – yeah. Interfering with his child, and um, it's sort of dealt with in a different way. I mean, it's it's much more explicit in this book, and much more. Um, um, and it's obviously from from the girl's perspective that you that you read about the story. But the interesting thing is that towards the end of the book, I won't say what happens, but there is a scene towards the end where um, they all sort of converge or threaten to converge on a place where there's a house party going on. And, you know, like right. at the end of um, Lolita, 
there's a house party and yeah. the house is full of people and, you know, there's this this sort of incredibly intense one-on-one drama finds its conclusion in this yeah. party where nobody knows who anyone is, you know, and there's people everywhere. The same thing happens in this book. And one thing that I would be just fascinated to know is to what extent that device, it, it felt really obvious to me. Like, right. I mean, it was... It was a it was a perfectly fine device. I I think the end of this book gets a little OTT, and I you know love the book a bit less by the end of it than I did while I was reading it. But I did think oh, this, this is it's a real kind of it felt like a real reference to Lolita. It, it, it has to be surely, surely because yeah. you could, how could you write a book about an older man abusing yeah. a younger girl and not have end that with a scene yeah. like that and not yeah. be familiar with that yeah. you sort of cutting across. Some it's not as tricksy as Lolita or as you know full of double meanings and all of that sort of thing it's it's um it is much more of a straightforward um you know um underdog watching um what happens to this girl's character as she's put through all of these tests and looking at the pattern of her self-loathing and her worthlessness pitched against her obligation to others and particularly like her hatred of women that she's sort of basically directly inherited from her her father. That's quite an interesting process to watch. This um, Gabriel Talent, incidentally, um, I mentioned this just because, as I said, like I did just think, oh, wow, it's this written by a guy. It's sort of interesting. Um, he was raised by two mums, oh. which he mentions very kind of explicitly in his um, bio. Oh, right. Mm. Um, you mentioning that he's coming to the Sydney Writers' yes. Festival made me think um, – I know we're doing one thing together at the Sydney Writers Festival, yes. which doesn't even bother talking about because it's sold out. So don't try and get tickets to it. But um, I don't. I've got no idea what else you're doing. Um, so what else are you doing at the Sydney Writers Festival? <laughs> well, um, I'm um, doing our thing. I'm um, interviewing De- Dennis Glover about that great Orwell book that he wrote. Oh yeah, that you loved. Yeah, yeah. That you talked about previously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, the Last Man in Europe, which yeah. is a great book and will be a really good session. Yeah. Um, I'm kind of basically going to be going to things, I think. Oh, that's mainly. good. Um, I'm interviewing, and I haven't read the book yet, a woman called Katie Turr, who's oh, an fantastic, correspondent yeah. who covered the Trump She's the election. one that Trump hates. Yeah. So I'm interviewing her at Town Hall. I am do- I'm being interviewed about my book On Doubt by Julia Baird. Oh, really? Yes. Um, you didn't ask me. <laughs> I wouldn't burden you with something like that. You get enough time listening to me bang on. Uh, and that's it. And then I um, I have not booked tickets to anything yet, but I better have a look. Do you know what's a good way sometimes to do writers' festivals is just show up on the day and go to whatever's left because then it makes you, like reading a newspaper from start to finish, you end up diving into things that you uh, wouldn't normally I think that's actually into. a really good policy. And I think that this festival too, like it's it's at the Carriage Works, um, it's at a different venue from where it normally is, which I think will kind of like bring a whole probably new people into the Sydney Writers Festival. And the um, the lineup of writers is like really it's a great lineup this year. Like so there's some um, there's some things that will um I think sell out really fast, like obviously our show. Um <laughs> But also um, like Julia Gillard um, in conversation with Laura Tingle. I mean, that would be great. Um, Helen Garner is doing something. So, yeah, yeah. I know, which sounds really awesome um, because it's that kind of slightly awkward self-analysis stuff that is always so fascinating with um, Helen Garner. Um, But also like the Michaela Maguire, who's the 
curator, artistic director of the Sydney Writers Festival, her like ninja talent is finding just absolutely fascinating emerging writers and bringing them. So like you will probably read or hear six writers who then go on to, you know, win the Booker Prize or do whatever. Like she brought George Saunders out last year, which, you know, she's got this real kind of witchy ability. So the next book that I'm going to read from the Sydney Writers Festival lineup is um, a book called Pachinko by Min Jin Lee. Oh, yeah. Um, I've heard of it. Yeah, yeah. which is apparently incredibly gripping um, and it's sort of set in Korea um, and it is apparently just like – Absolutely a page turner. Um, I've just started a book called Boy Swallows Universe by Trent Dalton, which has been fairly oh, eagerly anticipated. Yeah. Uh, who's a writer at the Weekend Australian magazine whose work always goes quite viral. Um, he's got a lovely writing style. So he's written a novel which is actually inspired by his own true life story, his personal story. Uh, so I started that, but I'll save talking about it till I've read a little bit more oh, okay. about it. Yeah, I want to read that too. Um, hey, i got to get downstairs. Yeah, I've right. got, got, got a show to get to wear. Yeah, you've got um, cricket to talk. I do. Um, okay, well, we'll um, I'll see you. You're, you're off overseas for a few weeks. So I am. See you when you get back. Absolutely. I'll be, I'll have, I'll be replete with tales. <laughs> bye. <laughs> okay, bye.